Today on The Black Goat, wisdom, curation, and social media. Does your advisor affect your well-being and what happens when you don't have one anymore? And what sorts of exciting changes are happening at journals and what are we most excited about in the field? Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode two of The Black Goat. With me today are my co-hosts, Alexa Tullett. Hi, Alexa. Hi, Sanjay. And Samin Vizier. Hi, Samin. Hi, Sanjay. So we got through our first episode, and we're now recording number two, and we've had many exciting developments in between, which people listening to this will have no idea of because we haven't put any of this out yet. But we have a website, right? We have a Facebook page. We have a Twitter, so I feel like that's we almost don't need to record the podcast anymore. <laughs> We're basically right? done now. Yeah. <laughs> now we just need to hire some RAs to put all the content in, right? It's just like running a lab. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we wanted to to start off today's show talking sort of briefly, more briefly about uh, the idea of wisdom and curating things and social media. And really the, the impetus for this is a, uh, the introduction to the most recent annual review of psychology. Uh, the, the intro was written by the editors, Susan Fisk, Dan Schachter, and Shelley Taylor. It's kind of making the rounds, ironically, on social media. We'll talk about whether that's a good or a bad thing. Um, but it, uh, it was getting a lot of discussion online, and we thought we'd kind of chime in with our own thoughts. Um, I'll just read the first couple of sentences of it for listeners. Uh, um, again, this is the, the annual review introduction for the 2017 issue, Annual Review of Psychology. It starts off, Wisdom does not often appear in rapid-fire social media posts. Wisdom takes time and thought the accumulation of knowledge informed by evidence and expertise, and the crafting of careful prose. Um, and it goes on to uh, discuss, uh, um, to, to frame the annual review issue as curated wisdom from hand-picked experts. So uh, I'm curious, what do we think of this? Alexa, what do well, you think? So <laughs> I think, I mean, at first glance, I think the argument that wisdom comes from thinking about things for a longer amount of time is hard to disagree with. Um, but I think the broader point um, in this introduction is the idea that, um, so I guess, one, I think it's an attack on sort of like the format of social media posts. Um, so in other words, the idea that, you know, saying something in a quick offhand way can't be productive or that having these um, discussions online is always going to sacrifice something that thinking about things for a longer amount of time would accomplish. Um, but I think that the uh, point that's more interesting and also becomes clearer later in the introduction when they talk about vetting topics, um, which is done by the editorial committee, um, and taking the time uh, to experience some curated wisdom from hand-picked experts. Um, to me, this is the more interesting part um, because I think this suggests the, that the selectivity that comes from um, becoming in, an expert in the field in some way um, is going to like improve the quality of the work. But of course, um, of course, the problem with that is the selectivity that we exercise um, is going to be biased by like our own views and our own experience. Um, so I, I find this like a kind of like an ironic effect when um, in some of my own research we look at, you know, the effects of just like considering things for a long period of time um, and whether that brings you to a better conclusion. And sometimes I think it leaves just more sort of room for our own uh, biases to enter into our decisions. Um, so that's the part that stood out to me. I think expertise is a really interesting topic, and maybe one we'll do we'll do a full segment on later on in the show if if Sanjay and Alexa are up for it. But I think I find myself struggling a lot with what is an expert, who's an expert, especially with my grad students. So currently, I have a first year and a second year grad student in my lab here at Davis, 
and they know so much more than I do about so many things. Like for one thing, they know R, but they also know a lot of other software and, and statistical things and you know other things going on in the world. So I often find myself deferring to their expertise. And then there are other times when you know they show me a correlation, like a self-other agreement correlation, and it's not between 0.3 and 0.6. And then I say, yeah, try again. That's you did something wrong. And I realize, oh, okay, I have learned something. I do know something, you know, from my experience. Um, so I think expertise is a really complicated issue. It's interesting to me to read, now when I read this, I have a knee-jerk reaction of, like, have strong disagreement with a lot of this introduction. But I think if I had read the same thing 10 years ago, I think I wouldn't have seen much wrong with it. I would have thought, yeah, wisdom, and yeah, like, the most senior accomplished people in our field, they would be really interesting to know who they pick to be experts and what those people have to say about the field. That sounds like a totally legitimate enterprise. And I'm not saying it's not, but I think my perspective on it has changed over time. And I mean, the social media part is really interesting. So like just this weekend, I woke up really early on Saturday morning and didn't feel like getting out of bed. So I got on Twitter and I like posed a question to a couple of people about some something relevant to our field. And I got like responses from Chris Chambers and Joachim Bendakurkova. Sorry, Joachim, I don't know how to say your last name. <laughs> um, like, he just posted on Twitter today how to say his last oh, name. Oh, that's funny. Sorry. I totally don't remember. <laughs> Sorry, Joachim. Um, but like, I thought it was really cool that like between 6 and 6.15 a.m. on a Saturday morning, I got like a couple people's opinions about something I, I was really curious about. I've never met, well, I think I might have met Joachim in person. I don't think I've met Chris in person. Um, but they have like really, really, they have a lot of expertise and knowledge that I don't about different topics, and and I have that experience with much younger people on social media too. Like I think it's really cool to be able to kind of do this really interactive thing across the world. There's um yeah a conversation that um, you and I had recently, Samin, um, where we were talking about related issues and. I asked you if you actually I think I assumed that you would agree with me when I said like I think that we do probably get better at psychology over time and you said like I don't know if that's true um, especially within our own particular areas um, and that was something that I hadn't really thought about that much before because yeah I have this strong intuition that if you do things for a long time you'll get better at them um, but I think the thing we forget about that is that as we do things for a long time, we get invested in the ways that we've been doing them and perhaps like close-minded to alternatives. Um, and so I think that is the, maybe the um, other side of the expertise coin is that um, the more experience you have with something, um, the more you can become sort of entrenched in the ways that you do things. Um, and also, uh, yeah, perhaps maybe less open to alternatives. Yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot... A lot needs to be unpacked about what do we, what are we expecting out of social media? What do we even mean when we say social media? Because there's Twitter, there's Facebook, there's blogs, right? And I mean, I don't think anybody's expecting like deep, extended wisdom to come on Twitter, at least not in one 140 character tweet, maybe in a tweet storm or something. But uh, you know, that that's not re really what people are using it for. And I think we, you know, to people who are either non-users or casual users of social media, when they find out about social media, it tends to be when there's controversy. And even for people who use it, the sort of the memorable stuff is like the big stuff, right? But there's so much just sort of little useful exchange going on, just like, you know, everything else, it's the Pareto principle, right? You know, 80% is 20% and vice versa. So like, just last week, I had some students ask in my intro to psych class a question about conformity and whether there's any research on non-conformity within non-conformist subcultures. And I had no idea. And so I just posted it on Twitter and I got a bunch of really cool answers and I was able to tell my students and it was, uh, and I couldn't find those answers Google scholaring. I couldn't come up with the right keywords and that sort of thing was like really useful. Um, and then, uh, you know, but also social media means things like blogs, right? And I, I always think of there was this exchange last year between Matt Lieberman and Tal Yarconi um, and various collaborators and what have you. It started with a PNAS, I think it was a PNAS article that Matt wrote, and then Tal wrote a blog post, and then Matt wrote a blog post, and there's this whole back and forth that sort of started 
with a traditional journal article, but then was in blog posts. And people were posting this, and they were discussing it on social media. And it was in a blog. It was in a form of social media itself. Um, and it was generating a lot of really interesting discussion, right? And, and people were even making jokes, oh, you can make a, a whole seminar just out of this back and forth. And I think there was something to that. Um, so, I mean, I think there's a lot of value in social media. And there's also, frankly a lot of crud in journals, right? We we remember the memorable, but like, go back and pick up a random journal issue from the 1980s and read it cover to cover. And, you know, there's it's like watching an old episode of SNL. You think SNL used to be better in the old days, and then if you watch an entire episode, you're like, oh, wow, there was a bunch of stuff in here that just wasn't that funny. Um, and so, yeah, so I think we, we sort of, you know, I, I think we kind of have these expectations of you know, where stuff is coming. And I think there are experts and wise people everywhere in every medium and every format. And, and kind of some are better for some kinds of expertise and wisdom. I don't think there's more or less people anywhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Good work, Sanjay. <laughs> All right. Well, we killed that one. All right. <laughs> I think we should so do the longer segment on it sometime. I think it's really uh, interesting. Yeah, I think, I think yeah, I mean, yeah. social media is changing and technology is changing so much, right? Um, I think that would be cool that we, we may have to come back to that in a future GOAT. Um, all right. So let's, uh, should we do our letter of the week? Yeah, let's do the letter of the week. All right, Alexa, you read us our letter of the week. Okay, here's the letter of the week. Uh, Dear Black Goat, I've heard and given the advice that in graduate school, the most important determinant of your well-being and success is your advisor and your relationship with your advisor. Post-graduate school, what do, you uh, what do you feel is the greatest determinant of your well-being and or success? Uh, sincerely, Anonymous. So I think we were thinking of maybe discussing this uh, question in two parts. Um, so first, there's the premise, which is the first part, right, that the most important determinant of your well-being and success in graduate school is your relationship with your advisor. And then uh, the second part is the follow-up question, which is um, what is the source of well-being um, post having an advisor? Um, There's well-being and success, which are kind of different things. <laughs> Sometimes very different, yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> Um, so I totally agree with the premise, I, and I, I give this advice a lot, that I think that the more I see, the more I realize how much of the variance between grad students and how well, how much they enjoy grad school and how well they do and so on. So much of it has to do with their advisor from my perspective, but I'm curious if you guys agree. Yeah, I, I, I think I mostly agree. I mean, I think, you know, it's tough. I think, I think all three of us had really good relationships with our advisors. It would be interesting. So may, maybe we've got, maybe that's a form of survivor bias. Maybe yeah. people that have terrible advisors don't make it, but maybe there are people out there who sort of coped with a, a not so great advisor. Um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, it's just somebody who has so much power over your life to put it in really sort of naked terms, right? But it's also somebody that you have a, a chance to learn a lot from. Um, and, and you know, I've realized. I, Sorry. Oh yeah, just I've realized being on the other side of that now. Like, I'm I'm like the the most grown up person in the city of Eugene, Oregon, that some of my students have a like meaningful relationship with, which is scary for them and maybe for me too. Yeah. I think also the advisor is like a buffer between the grad student and the rest of the field. Sometimes, like they help, yeah. like you know pick yourself up after a rejection or, you know, prepare you for potential questions you're going to get at a conference or things like that. And so much, there's a lot of like confidence building too, that goes into it. And I think some advisors don't realize that or neglect that. And I didn't re I actually, I didn't come to this view that the most important thing is the advisor, I think until well after grad school and seeing what a leg up I had because I had a good advisor and just feeling like, wow, this is not fair. Like I had such an advantage over other people. Yeah. Um, I think that like, so first of all, I also agree with the premise. Um, and I think that like Samine, I, yeah, I probably didn't appreciate how important advisors were until I guess I no longer had one. Um, and also until I started to consider, um, like my role as an advisor and whether I was able to accomplish what my advisor um, accomplished for me. So I've had many times since 
becoming an assistant professor where I've thought like, whoa, how did Mickey do that? Um, and one of the biggest things I think is confidence building. So somehow Mickey and some of my other mentors um, sort of conveyed to me that I was in the right place and that I knew what I was talking about. And that um, I think is one of the hardest things about graduate school is feeling like, um, like you don't know that. Um, so I think a lot about how I can sort of instill that in my graduate students. And I also think a lot about um, instilling like an excitement about uh, the things that we do and a like sense of purpose. So that was something that also I sort of took for granted in graduate school and uh, now attribute very much to to Mickey. So do you guys feel like you need that less now, like you're more independent, or do you just get that other places or some of both? I do feel like I get it less now. I think, you know, having an advisor really, like I was thinking about this. I wrote something on Twitter about how to get where I am. I feel like I had to ignore a lot of really good advice. And that that, that might seem to go against saying the importance of an advisor. But I think one thing that a really good advisor does is help you train when to listen to your own intuition and when to take advice. And a really good advisor trains you when to ignore their advice, right? Like gives you the confidence, gives you the common sense to sometimes say, okay, I see where you're coming from, but actually that doesn't apply in this particular situation or it doesn't apply for me. So one of the things I dealt with as an assistant professor, no longer having an advisor was to have to do that more on my own to have, when I would get advice from people, when I get advice from my chair or from other people in the field and it didn't feel right for me having to like decide when to take that advice and when not to. I think that was pretty hard to do. It was a pretty hard transition to go from having somebody who I could talk it through with. And I mean, obviously I, there are people, including Sam, my former advisor, who I could talk it through with, but that is a challenge, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, having, you know, and and maybe to some extent this is good even when you're in graduate school, right? Like having one person for everything, sometimes that works, but it doesn't always. And so having sort of multiple people, and I think that kind of increases, that sort of dispersion increases as you progress in a career to where you might oh, there's this person I talked to about this sort of thing and that person I talked to about that sort of thing. And also something that I think starts for a lot of people in graduate school and becomes more important later is peer relationships, right? Like having your people, I know for me for a long time, and this is even still true today, my, you know, graduate school friends, uh, we would get together at conferences and it was very just sort of comfortable and restorative to get together with these people that I had been close to and, and remain so, and I've now developed new friendships and sort of peer relationships that I have people that I can, you know, <laughs> send send texts to, and I'm like, oh, God, this thing just happened, or, or whatever, um, and, uh, you know, sort of vent with or get advice from or bounce things off of. So would you say that's the single most important determinant of one's well-being post-grad school <laughs> or success? I mean, I think is it the single I don't know I mean for me like having family and having something that I really deeply care about outside of work has been a really huge anchor for me um this sense that like yeah just there's other things that matter for me um that's that's been a big deal and but I don't think I could survive with only that I don't think I could survive if I didn't have really close meaningful relationships in my field because the work is so important to me. I can't imagine doing this if I felt alone or everybody hated me or something. So just to provide a counterpoint, and I know this is going to be super, super unpopular thing to say, but hey, why do a podcast (laughs) if you're not going to be honest? Um, I don't have much outside of work and I don't (laughs) miss it. And I think like, I'm not proud of that. I'm not saying it's a good thing. and I don't recommend it for other people. I believe everyone who says that they would be miserable without... Uh you know, a lot of meaningful things outside of work. I, I don't know. I don't know what's different about me that that doesn't, I don't feel anything missing, but I also, and I have, obviously I'm very, very close with several of my family members and that means a lot to me and so on. And I have some hobbies and interests outside of work. Um, but 
I would say that the vast, vast majority of my meaning in my relationships have something to do with work. And then they obviously get deeper than just about work. But Yeah. Yeah, I was going to um, start to answer the second part of uh, this letter by saying that I don't think things really change from graduate school to um, being a professor in terms of like what you need to be happy, but I think maybe the specific form of um, the source of that happiness changes. So I think that in both cases, um, the people who you work with are the source of your like well-being and success. And so when you're a graduate student, your advisor is um, an extremely influential person with whom you work. Um, but then post-graduate school, I think for me, a really big source of I think well-being is um, my relationships with my colleagues. Um, and yeah, I think I continue to have mentor-like figures, um, even though I don't have an official advisor anymore. Um, so for me, that is, yeah, probably this. Uh, so now, now you go through family in there, and now I feel like if I say like single most, I mean, in a professional <laughs> sense, that is the biggest source of my professional happiness. Um, and I think success, I think in some ways success follows from happiness. I'm not sure about that, though. Um, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm definitely not saying everybody needs to have a family or, no, or anything like that. I think it's just having, having, having a, like a sense of meaningful relationships. And I think, you know, different people, I think some people, Samin, I think you probably find that, like, you have, you care about what you do and you have meaningful relationships. Meaningful not just in a worky, meaningful way, but meaningful in a way that, like, you care about things. And I have that too. And, and you know. Yeah. I didn't mean to yeah. imply that you were saying that at all. And I think that's one of the cool things, like, one of the reasons I wanted to do a podcast with you guys is I do think there are ways in which we're really different from each other that I think make yeah. this, our answers to these questions more interesting. And I, I yeah. think, yeah, I just wanted to, like, highlight that difference because I think it's, I think I would have liked to know when I was a grad student too that like, you know, everyone does repeat that it's so important to have balance and work-life balance and so, and that never resonated with me. And so I just want to say like, if that doesn't resonate with you, that you might not be alone. Like I do think most yeah. people no, do it's need a great something point. like that. But I, yeah. I think that's a great point. Like you got to figure out what works for you. And I think, you know, I mean, we since, since we talked about social media, that's been really interesting watching how for some people kind of, finding like when you care deeply about something right and finding sort of your people mm -hmm. in your field um and and there's this really interesting thing where i think social media is enabling that for some people um where like 20 years ago you would have just been in your department and you had to get along with the people in your department and that's still hugely important but now you can find like-minded others people not just doing the same topics you do but people who see the world in ways that you find sort of meaningful and enriching to talk to them about I think it's yeah. yeah it is less important now I think to be like have a lot of people in your department that you connect with I would say I heard this once I don't it was like a claim about social science research but I don't know if it was if the science is valid but the claim rings true to me which is that for people in, at work in general, not just in academia, but one of the biggest predictors of work satisfaction, so one of them is your boss, but the other one is having a really good friend at work, and I think that's true. As yeah. much as I love my friends who are far away, if I didn't have like a really, really good friend at work who I could go and knock on their door and be like, you're coming with me to get coffee now because I need to vent, or you know, things mm -hmm. like that. I think that, and I find that one is goes a long way, but if you have more than one, great for you, that's awesome. Like then you have, you're really lucky, but have, the difference between zero and one, I think is really huge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. So anonymous, have we answered your question? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do we think we've answered anonymous's question? People, it's all, <laughs> it's still about people. I think that's, yeah. uh, yeah. Whoever people at work, people outside work, people in your academic world, but not in your department, um, having people that, yeah. Mm -hmm cool well should we should we move on to our uh our main topic of the day yeah sure so yeah we thought we'd kind of have a longer discussion about cool stuff that's happening at journals and kind of the 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 new directions that sort of publishing and exchanging information are going 
Um, and if you guys will indulge me, I thought I'd just, I, I want to set up what it was like when I was starting off. Um, I think I'm, I'm the old person among this group, right? So, you know, I started, I started graduate school in 1996, and I love telling people this just to see the shocked looks on their faces that, like, there were no electronic journals then. And so the way that you would, everything was like delivered on dead trees. That was it. And and the way you would submit a manuscript, you would print six. Are, do you guys, did you guys come along after this? Or do you remember this? Like you'd print six copies and put it in a giant envelope and mail it, snail mail it to the journal. Yeah. Um, and then they would like send one copy to reviewer A and one copy to reviewer B and put another copy on file and whatever. And that was sort of the world that we lived in. And the in. editor's wife was the manuscript coordinator. Yeah. <laughs> yep, a little bit of sexism then, or gender roles, or what have you, and and uh, you know, uh, um, I mean that so much of how we publish now, it's sort of you step back and you kind of you know you do this exercise of making the familiar strange, and you're like, how many of the things we do now, we're just doing them because once upon a time, you know, scientists started out with this larger goal of like they want to communicate with each other about their work. And then the constraints of the technology, I mean, even, you know, the idea of like an article and an issue and a volume and all that kind of stuff, that's like a physical world that no longer exists. Um, And so the field is starting to change. And so a lot of what's going on in the field, in in my point of view, is like, because of that old world, you had to withhold information because you couldn't disseminate every piece of information you couldn't tell everybody every study you did you couldn't give the details necessary to replicate a method and that sort of thing um and that's all changed and the technology is now there to just put tremendous amounts of information out there god i sound like our president tremendous (laughs) amounts of information um and so so you know that's been a huge change and i think a lot of the awareness of uh um issues related to open science and replicability is getting traction that it didn't used to because it's now possible to do things that uh, the old sort of dead tree journal world couldn't do. Um, People might have said, oh, we should share all of our information. I bet 20 years ago if you'd said to somebody, if that's possible, would you like to do it? And a lot of people would have said yes, but it's just not possible. So that's kind of like the, my old man version of it. But like what are, okay, let's get really current and specific. Like what are some things that are going on in sort of how scientists exchange information, how journals publish information that that you guys are are excited about. Samin, do you want to start? Sure. Well, this is probably isn't starting at the beginning, but one thing just free associating that's interesting to me is as we're seeing things change in terms of like not having physical print copies, so there being more space and things being more open access and so on, is it's fascinating to me to watch that as we're making things more open on the like consumer side of it, there's also this push to make the peer review process more transparent. So things like identifying reviewers and or posting the reviews. Um, that's something like we could have done that in the past. I mean, posting, I guess, requires some space, but um, or identifying the handling editor. That's something like when, you know, I felt pretty strongly about when I had the chance to implement that. And why wasn't that always done? Like what reason is there for not identifying the handling editor? Um so it's interesting to me that this, these technological changes have led to also rethinking things that are actually completely independent, but it's kind of cool mm-hmm. that it makes us, yeah, like making the, what we've taken for granted, taking a step back and saying, like, wait, actually, does that make sense? Um, so yeah, I like the whole, I don't know exactly where I feel, where I stand on how much of the peer review process should be open and how open and at what point and how to handle the fact that so many reviewers are assistant professors or even earlier career. So I don't think everything should be signed. I don't think everything should be posted, but I think it'd be good to just make more deliberate decisions about those things. Um, and I like the move towards open access. I think, you know, I don't, I don't understand all of the politics and the legalities and everything else, the financials of like for-profit publishers versus uh, academic publishers versus open access and where, how, how the author publication fees are, are calculated and why some of them are $3,000 and some of them are a few hundred dollars and so on. All that stuff I think is really interesting. I'm glad we're, we're tackling it and dealing with it. Um, and then, of course, like pre-registration, um, new standards like for disclosure and for discussing power and sample size, things like that. All those are, I think, great, great things to be thinking really hard about. 
Um, it's interesting, Sanjay, that you started by talking about how like technology has allowed for all of these changes, um, because of course that's true, and technology, um, I think, allows us to you know, potentially totally transform um, the way that publishing works. Um, so it was really interesting to me um, today on PsychMap, somebody posed a question about um, how they would like, or uh, they were asking for people's utopian visions of how publishing would work um, if they sort of started from scratch, right? Um, and some of these were like much too sophisticated for me, and they were talking about how, you know, basically you could have um, articles that accumulate knowledge as data is collected and things like that. Um, but the first things that I thought of when we raised this issue of um, changes that uh, editors are implementing now is I act. I actually think a step towards like a maybe perhaps more archaic but idealistic view of how science should work. Um, so the, the first thing that I thought of was um, the introduction of the registered reports format, um, which mm -hmm. has been taken up at a number of different journals. Um, and the registered reports format is this idea where um, people's manuscripts are evaluated at um, the stage where a study has been designed but not yet conducted. Um, and so to me, this aligns with, for at least me, a more um, inexperienced and naive view of how I thought science should work. Um, so to me, it was more intuitive as somebody who was not yet, I guess, um, experienced as a psychologist. I guess, I guess this goes back to our, our discussion of experience and what you give away with experience. Um, but to me, it was just always very intuitive that um, something would be evaluated based on um, the like design so that the people who are conducting the study um, are uninvested in whatever the outcome of the study is. Um, and so that's what is um, allowed by registered reports. So I think registered reports are um, awesome in that they remove a lot of people's motivations to find um, particular um, results in their studies um, and not only that but they uh, make uh, they address the sort of issue of publication bias um, so that was one thing that I thought of yeah didn't uh, I, I I feel like there's a Tony Greenwald article from like the 1970s where he proposed something that looks similar to registered reports I can't uh, remember for sure what the article was, but I mean, I think that that's one of those ideas that that's been around for a while. And people probably used to say, well, you know, journal space is precious. Why would we? And now it's like, oh, we can publish everything. We can do this. Um, right. And I, I totally agree with you. It's it, it aligns, I think, a lot more closely with, you know, a sort of naive. And, a, and I think that word has both good and bad connotations. Right. But a, a kind of like. Uh, uh, naive sense of how science ought to work, and I think there's sometimes we think naive is bad, but it's it's you know when when we first got our principles and we haven't been tainted by all the compromises we have to make, you know, to the world we live in. So yeah, I, I think registered reports are really cool. I I don't know that they're ever going to be everything. I don't. I, I'm not sure I want them to be everything, but I want them to be there. I think the people that are pushing that are doing really good work. Yeah, I think that whenever it's possible, so when it's a study that is, like, so I, my, a lot of my papers wouldn't be possible if, if only registered reports were happening because we use data that we've collect, been collecting for six years and coding and so on. Um, but I do come across a lot of papers, either as a reviewer or, you know, in that kind of process where I'm like, man, I wish I could have, had some input in the design because it would be so much better if they had just added this one thing or done this something differently. And I know that's frustrating <laughs> for the authors too, right? To hear like, well, right. God, we can't do, change that now. Um, so yeah, I really like that idea. Um, so let's name some journals. Let's reward them. So like the Royal Society Open Science has registered reports. Yep. JRP mm -hmm. is going to very soon, Journal of Research and Personality. There's an entire social psych journal dedicated only to registered reports, the Comprehensive Results in Social Psychology Journal. Do you guys know of any others in psychology that do registered reports? So Cortex does registered reports, and also um, Nature Human Behavior does registered reports. Oh, cool. So that's a new yeah. nature journal that just started this year. And that, so, so since you mentioned Royal Society, can I, can I humble brag a little bit? Yeah. So, uh, um, 
Yeah, Chris, Cham- Chris Chambers and Essie Veeding, I think that's, uh, I apologize, Essie, if I'm mispronouncing your name. I've only seen you on Twitter. Um, th- another thing that they implemented at, uh, um, at Royal Society of Open Science is what they call accountable replications, which is uh, an implementation of an idea I blogged about a few years ago. This is the humble brag part, which I called the Pottery Barn Rule. I actually like their name better. Um, Because I think it conveys better the idea. And so they've developed this policy at at Royal Society Open Science where if the journal publishes an article, then the journal commits to publishing replications of that study. It's sort of saying, look, if we're going to, if we think it's worth doing this study, um, then then we're going to own the future replicability of that study. And if you do a replication, we'll publish it, and we won't, uh, w- you know, we'll judge whether you carried it out competently, but we won't judge the the results, um, whether it's, it's quote unquote failed or successful. Um, I note Scott Lilienfeld in his editorial at Clinical Psychological Science also said that he wants to do that at that journal. So I think that's another idea that uh, um, I mean, the idea when I blogged about this was to say like, let's not bury replications in sort of replication specialty journals, which is something that people have proposed at various points in time. Um, and let's, let's really make the, the journals that publish studies, uh, it's like a newspaper that has a really rigorous corrections policy, right? It, it enhances the reputation of the journal or the, the newspaper, like the New York Times, that they publish these Corrections. They say we're gonna, you know, we're gonna hold ourselves up to to these standards, and we're gonna tell the world when when something came out different. And of course, accountable replications can be for successes too. They should be for successes too. Um, so I think that's a really interesting thing. It'll, I'm really interested how that ends up playing out. What was humble about that, Bragg, Sanjay? Nothing, nothing whatsoever. (laughs) Kidding, kidding, kidding. That's really cool. So I just read this. I I can't remember the name of the author, but it was published in ProPublica. It was a journalist. Uh, as an article about um, problems in scientific publishing, especially in medicine, where doctors are often not keeping up to date with the scientific evidence and prescribing procedures that are either unnecessary or even harmful. And one of the examples they gave was the New England Journal of Medicine published a study on deep brain stimulation with seven participants, because apparently you have to have electrodes deep in your brain to get this done, so they couldn't find very many people. And when they published it, it got a lot of attention. But the editor, to his credit, wrote an editorial saying this is very preliminary, we need more follow-up, but this is, could be really, really exciting because they showed that it improved spatial memory to do deep brain stimulation. And then another team attempted a replication, got 49 people, and found that actually it harmed spatial memory and submitted it to New England Journal of Medicine, and it got rejected. One of the reviews said it would have been better if they had found an intervention that improves uh, spatial memory. And the editor says something about it not being, you know, new enough or important enough, that kind of thing. And then there was a... L- listeners, <laughs> listeners can't see Alexis in my body language <laughs> yeah. when Samin just said worse. that. But uh, anyway. <laughs> oh, so no. the, there was a panel where the New England Journal of Medicine editor was on the panel. And so the author of the replication study got to ask a question and asked, you know, would, would you publish a failed replication of like one of the your most highly cited papers, like one that got a lot of attention. And you know, I'm just to disclose, I'm the author of this replication and it didn't get published and so on. And the editor said, according to this reporter, who I think I think he was quoting directly, that it's the editor's hands are tied. It's not their job to adjudicate who's right or wrong, and it's up to the replicators to go and meet up with the original authors and figure out what happened and sort it out and blah blah blah. Which blew my mind like that that editor should be fired on the spot to to like <laughs> abandon their responsibility it's not about deciding who's right or wrong it's deciding about whether yeah. the, uh, the readers should see this evidence and then readers can evaluate it. but that uh, that was crazy to me so maybe new england journal of medicine should hear about your potty barn rule i don't know if anything's changed since then but wait did you did you just call it the potty barn no, rule pottery. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I think, I mean, it's cool to see journals doing different things with replications, right? So JRP uh, um, has signaled a very, Journal of Research and Personality has signaled very strong interest in publishing replications. I think there are a number of other journals that uh, are sort of saying the right things, and, and it's hard to tell at this point 
how often that's just maybe they're not yeah. getting a lot. Uh, I've, but, I've had yeah. um, authors ask, like, how do you decide where to submit it and what's, who's going to be favorable? I just want to be clear. I'm not ever on this podcast speaking in my role as editor of any journal, but I will say that SPPS, for example, which I am editor of, but I'm not speaking in that role right now. Um, <laughs> so they say that in their submission guidelines, they list the types of manuscripts that they accept, and in that list is replication. So that's one sign. But also you can look, so look at the submission guidelines and look at what they have published. Have they published replications and so on when you're deciding yeah. where to submit? Um, and so much really does depend on the policies and the editorial team of a journal. So you can get some clues from that and from their recent activities in that journal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Should we talk about stinking badges? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's there's a lot of interesting stuff happening at Psychological Science, which is kind of like a flagship journal of our field, right? The, the badges thing has been really interesting to watch, I think. Uh, um, I mean, Brian Nosek has now, I've seen him give a few presentations about that. It seems to be, you know, just putting a little badge saying I pre-registered or, or I'm making my data open um, seems to be incentivizing some changes in behavior. I find it great when I teach statistics, I can like go looking for the open data badge and then I can like find a cool study with open data and I can download it for my stats class. I've done that before. So it's got all these other kind of maybe unexpected benefits too. Yeah, I think one thing that's really fascinating to me is that, um, and I've had this experience as an author too, that you, you're trying to read the mind of the journal and the journal's board and so on. And so I think even just signaling, journals signaling what they would prefer, I think could go a really, really long way for others. So even without giving a badge, but saying, hey, all of the things being equal, we would rather you share your data, just so you know. You don't have to, and it won't affect our decision, but just so you know. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of authors don't even know where the journal they're submitting to stands on that, whether that's something they appreciate or not, or see negatively. Or So I think one of the values in badges is the journal signaling their preference. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree. And I think that it... Um, communicates like the norms and expectations of the field as well so I think it's easy to think of badges as these like um sort of like a weird incentive because you know is giving someone like a stamp on their publication really going to like influence people's research behavior um but I think that it does and I think that one of the ways in which it does that is yeah by creating this norm that that is what we care about as researchers right um so then you know, if you don't get any badges, it sort of feels like you're like not you're not doing sort of like top rate research anymore. Um, and knowing that that's what editors agree on is, I think, like a powerful influence. Yeah, that brings up a, a common criticism I hear about badges is that it's not fair because not all research is eligible for a badge. And so if you're saying I, I prefer pre-registered research to non-pre-registered research, or we think that all the things being equal, pre-registration is better than not pre-registering. And it's interesting to me that people are so upset about this being unfair because we say that about many, many, many characteristics of research. All else being equal, a representative sample is better than a non-representative sample. All else being equal, a behavioral measure of a behavior is better than a self-report of a behavior. You know, many, many things like that, all else being equal. And we often don't meet those ideals, but we don't feel like it's not fair to give someone else credit if they do, right? Like, I, I've never used a representative sample in my life, but I don't feel like it's not fair to say that someone who does, does is better on that dimension than I am. And I feel the same way about pre-registration. Even though I've never used it, I don't think it's not fair to give other people credit for using it. I hope that other features of my research that are correlated with the fact that pre-registration is very, very hard for me, like the fact that we use behavioral measures that take years to code, well, I'll get those points, and maybe other people won't get those points. Um, so the issue of fairness, I think, comes up a lot with badges, and it kind of blows my mind, because I don't really see what's wrong with saying on a particular dimension, here's what's better, so more of this dimension is better than less, but it's not the only dimension that matters. Yeah, I, I sort of feel like with the the badges, I mostly don't worry about it now because they're just not, they're kind of a, a they're a pretty weak signal. They're not like, yeah, there there's not a sense that like unbadged research is bad or anything like that. And you know, I do I do worry about some sorts of things. Just I think we have to be careful as we restructure incentives about how they affect everybody, right? So. You know, an example that I, I've used before is like with open data, 
there's some some kinds of research that you just can't make the data open because of the kind of data you're collecting and the the sort of the things that are relevant. It would be re-identifiable, um, those sorts of things. And th those concerns, I think, intersect more with some subfields of research. And I think there's a, a very fair perception that, like, if you study, for example, rare populations, um, those are more re-identifiable. You might be more concerned. Or if you do qualitative work. And so I think going forward, we just have to, to make sure that people that do that kind of work are included in the conversation because they, you know, they'll come up with ways to make these systems work better. Yeah. But the badges thing, I, I don't think is, is, I just don't think it's a big enough deal yet to leave anybody out, but I think that that is an important yeah. part of the conversation. And especially to the extent that there are dimensions that are not well recognized, not appreciated enough. So I think yeah. the idea behind the badges was to reward behavior that's currently, there's very little incentive to do it. There's very little incentive to share your data, to pre-register, et cetera. So if we add a little bit of an incentive, but it's true, there's also very little incentive to get representative samples or to get non-weird samples or a lot of these other things. Mm -hmm. And maybe we need to focus on incentivizing those behaviors more as well. Like it's certainly Absolutely. not just open science that should be incentivized more. But other things I think have always been valued, like having you know multiple studies in a paper or having behavioral measures, things like that. Maybe not, you know, who knows how much they should be valued and how we should weigh these different things. But part of the reason why some things have badges and some things don't is that some things haven't been valued, haven't been rewarded. Yeah. And we should be looking for more of those things. Like, I think we should have a not collected on MTurk badge. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Not, neither MTurk nor a college right, subject right, right, pool. Yeah. Right. Like, the, if it's anything that's not one of those two. Yeah. yeah no, I agree. What are, what are some other, I mean, psych science seems like they're doing a bunch of stuff, right? So, um, and a lot of this stuff is really, it's good sort of like, kind of behavioral economics kind of stuff, nudges and badges and checklists and things like that. I mean, checklists are a funny thing where, you know, so there are now more and more journals. I think Psych Science does this where, you know, you've got to sort of go through a checklist and, and kind of say, like, you know, did we report how the sample size was determined and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, you know, checklists in other fields with, like, professionals and experts, when they're implemented, they, like, save lives. You know, nobody... I don't get on an airplane and say to myself, holy cow, the, the pilot's using a checklist. He must not know what he's doing. Um, uh, or, you know, it's removing his freedom to, you know, make use his judgment about how to fly the plane, right? It's like, no, go through your damn checklist, dude. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and uh, I mean, nobody's going to die if a scientific study, well, actually, sometimes they will. I take that back. But, you know, uh, um, I think some of those kinds of things, they're just sort of like, you can totally say, oh, this manuscript didn't do this, and it's fine. Um, but it just sort of uh, um, makes makes the information available and kind of just nudges you to think about it. Um, these kinds of things, I mean, they seem to be good developments. I think the nice thing about checklists, too, is that they, in some ways, they draw clear lines um, in what otherwise would be gray territory. Um, so, like, forcing people to say whether or not they've reported all of the um, dependent variables in their study changes something that would previously have been, um, like, perhaps ambiguous to now you either have to do it or you have to say that you're not doing it. Right. Um, mm -hmm. so again, I think that's, uh, that's useful because it communicates like new norms and expectations. Um, but also I think anything that sort of removes, um, ambiguity and increases transparency, um, is a step, a step in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, I think another thing I would add is, and this kind of going back to the same point, but especially in contrast with like the the introduction we talked about with the annual review, and annual review is a different beast because it's not a traditional journal, but the issue of fairness and, and being a level playing field for everybody, I think that's something that I really appreciate the editors I've seen try really hard to increase that. So Steve Lindsay at Psych Science, for example, I think in addition to the badges and the disclosure checklists and so on. I've, the sense I've gotten from seeing his reactions to, you know, having failed replications submitted there are criticisms, critiques of published papers, et cetera. I think he seems very open to considering those, not saying, oh, well, we're psych science, we don't publish 
critiques or we don't publish mm -hmm. publications or things like that. And for a journal like, like Science, who, that has a very high status, very high prestige factor, to lead the way on those things, I think is going to pave the way for the journals that may be a little bit more apprehensive, a little bit more like not wanting to be the first to try something risky. Um, if they see Psych Science doing it and it working, um, I think I really appreciate both the, the move towards more open and replicable science, but also the attempt to be really fair and open to criticism and so on. I think that's something that not all editors and not all journals are, are prioritizing, even when they're prioritizing replicability. Yeah, cool. Cool. Well, have we, uh, have, have we, have we come to the end? Can I put in a plug for one more journal? So I think it's Absolutely, important to also yes. like reward the journals that are doing well. This one I definitely have a vested totally. interest in, but Calabra Psychology is a new open access journal by UC Press. And they're also trying to implement a lot of these, uh, both open science and uh, replicability related um, it, things. And I just think it's something to look out for, consider them as an outlet. It's, they do have an author publication charge, but it's much less than a lot of other open science journals, and it's owned by the U University of California system, so it's not a for-profit publisher, and I think it's, it's mm -hmm. a cool new development. Um, and you're, you're just for disclosure, yes. but also for inside scoop, you're an editor yeah, there, right? Yeah. So yes, I mean, I'm one of yeah. them. What's, what's that been? Well, okay, you're not supposed to speak for anybody. I won't ask. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, cool. Yeah, no, Calabra seems really cool. I really love the, like, I mean, this is a whole nother thing, you know, that, that's more kind of the, the publisher business side, right? But figuring out for open access journals, which I think is a really interesting development in our field, kind of these business models and, and how do you make those work? And they're, they're doing some really interesting stuff at Calabra. Yeah, and they also have a waiver. So if you can't pay the author publication charge, you can apply for a waiver. And I think they're pretty liberal about giving them out as long as you really mean cool. it, like that you really can't, you don't have funds to pay for the fee. Which brings me to another thing I would just want to say. I notice a lot of times I think people are, are understandably afraid or intimidated to ask if like they can have an exception to something or if they have a question about their paper that's under review and why it's taken so long or that kind of thing. And I think that as long as you're polite about it, I would encourage people, often in these situations, you know, they, they wait a long time before asking. So like, could I waive the author publication charge or have you lost my paper because it's been eight months and I haven't heard from you <laughs> or <laughs> things like that. And I, I think a lot of editors would probably appreciate a polite email about it because things happen and, and whatever, you know, we also don't know the circumstances that authors are in. So if there's something really important that's writing on, you know, hearing back or whatever, anyway, just in general, I think, I think there should be more communication and more openness on all sides and in all directions. And it's something I would encourage authors to, to be more, consider doing more. Cool. Cool. All right. Cool. Well, I, I, I think we've, I think we've gotten some good stuff out there. So, uh, yeah, are we done? <laughs> <I think so. laughs> how, how do we? How do you end a podcast? I need to Google that we after this. All right. Well, here we go. Yes. Uh, so, thanks everyone for listening. You can find the Black Goat on our brand new website, www.theblackgoatpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at Black Goat Pod, and we have a Facebook page, also Black Goat Pod. If you would like us to read and answer a letter from you, or if you'd just like to tell us what's up, you can email us at letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. And thank you, everyone, for joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>